in the first year of his ministry, and remember, Jesus' ministry run, ran roughly three years, and the mile markers are the Passovers. So his ministry started with a Passover when he cleansed the temple. And that first year between the two Passovers, he focused on making people aware that there was a prophet in Israel again after 400 years. In the second year, now what we're studying, he's focusing on a message. Work salvation has never worked. The Pharisees and the other authorities are leading you down the broad way of destruction. And it's implied, although not yet stated, God has another way. God always has another way. And he also demonstrated his authority, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about this week, the demonstration of his authority. Starting in Luke chapter 7, brother. Chapter 7. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. When he had ended all his sayings, this is the opening phrase in the, in the passage we're studying, that is, when he delivered this day's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, realistically, he probably delivered the Sermon on the Mount once a week because that was the day that people could get together and listen to him. There's no sense preaching if there's nobody in the house, or in this case, on the hillside. <coughs> so he's preaching outside Capernaum. He finishes the message, and he entered into Capernaum. Now remember, Capernaum is the home base for Jesus' Galilean ministry. And if we look at the activities of Jesus, for most of the year he's up in Galilee. And he's moving around from town to town, spreading his message and spreading word of him. And then during the feasts, he goes down to Jerusalem and ministers in the greater Jerusalem area. And that's going to be four times a year at the major feasts, one of which is the Passover. As he's coming into Capernaum, he's approached by the local Jewish leadership who are speaking in favor of an unusual Roman. This centurion, who is a leader of a hundred men in the army. Thank you. Um, he loved Israel and he built a synagogue for them here in their town. Now, Capernaum, remember, is on the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's a major fishing center. 
and it's the, the focus of this current passage. Later, we're going to be looking at another passage, which occurs down in Nain, um, which is south of Nazareth, Jesus' uh, birth town, well, not birth town, but hometown as he was growing up. And it's, it's close to the southern end of Galilee, just north of Samaria. Now, the centurion likely, at the very least, was what was called a God-fearer. Remember, the Jewish religion was Jewish. You were either a Jew or you were not. They had a name that was the Gentiles. And they had no regard for the Gentiles. The Jews, that is. They, they were God's chosen people. They knew it. And everyone else was Gentiles. Outsiders. Not part of us. Now, among the Greeks and the Romans, the more educated or thoughtful ones would look at the Greek and the Roman god myths of Apollo and Dionysus and Bacchus and Zeus turning into all manner of animals so that he could have sex with women. And they look at these myths and go, wow, these are stupid. I, these, whoever came up with these was at least drunk. At least. These are idiotic. We've got hundreds of gods and they act like toddlers on a bad day. And the more thoughtful and educated Romans rejected that worldview. And so they looked around to the subject peoples of the empire, and they found a whole bunch of god myths that were just as stupid as theirs were. Except for these Jews. Because they had the idea of a single almighty God who created the earth in a spoken word. And again, the more thoughtful, educated, and intelligent Romans said, that makes a lot of sense. That lines up with our ideas of science and philosophy. Did you hear me? The idea of an almighty God lined up better with their thoughts of science and philosophy than any other alternative that they had. I'd love to have some of them come in and talk to these people out on the street. <sighs> they realized it was a better fit. So they, what they did is they, they respected from afar. They heard of this God. It sounded like a good idea, but they weren't Jews, so they couldn't get involved in the religion. Essentially, they were what we would call a deist. Now, if you don't know what a deist is, don't feel bad. Most people don't know. Deism was a philosophical concept that uh, became very popular in the 17th and 18th centuries in European thought. And what deism said is, yes, God created the world. And he, he built it much the way one, one would build a very complicated clock. And he set, in motion, set it in motion, and then he walked away. Because... They had enough intellectual honesty to realize they couldn't explain how the earth got here without God. But they didn't want a God who cared about them. They didn't want a God who had say over their lives. And deism gave them a way to explain the world while ignoring God. 
Now, you've probably heard that many of our founding fathers were Christians. I hate to tell you this, many of our founding fathers were, in fact, deists. They believed in God. They thought the Judean Christian ethic was a good thing. But they weren't born-again Christians. Try to restrain your shock. But this is, this is how we have to think of that centurion. At least. Now, the Jewish leaders, they feel they have to defend this centurion to Christ. Because remember, the average Jew hated the Roman soldiers and hated their leadership even more. Now, we look at soldiers today. And thankfully, the way we look at soldiers today is not the way we, that America looked at soldiers in the late 60s and the early 70s. Where soldiers were regarded as baby killers by many in the community and were spat upon and mistreated. Today, we respect soldiers. We see them as defenders of liberty, as people doing a hard job that we no longer can do or never were capable of doing or weren't willing to do. They stand with their bodies between us and chaos. That's their job. That's how we view them. That's a very unusual view of soldiers historically. Historically, soldiers were bullies. They took advantage of the people around them. They could take whatever they wanted. They could put themselves up in your house, whether you wanted them or not. That's called quartering. It's one of the things that the Constitution forbids. And that, that, that negative view of soldiers persisted until at least the American Civil War. Okay, you really didn't have the soldier as a respected profession until a little bit in World War I and a whole lot in World War II. And then they got majorly disrespected in the 60s and 70s, and now they're coming back as respected. But the Jews do not like Roman soldiers, and they particularly don't like their leadership because they're in charge. But the Jewish leaders pass on this centurion's request for healing for his servant. Now, his servant might well have been Jewish. The Bible doesn't say, but frankly, it's fairly likely. So Christ, willing to favorably respond to this, starts heading toward the centurion's house. And as Christ is approaching the house, the centurion now sends friends out to Christ, telling Jesus that he's unworthy, that his house is unworthy. And Jesus shouldn't trouble himself to come, but just say a word and I know my servant will be healed. And he calls Jesus Lord, recognizing him for who he is, God. And Jesus marvels at the faith and the attitude of this soldier. And the reality is, our station in life tends to affect how we view religion and God. This man was a soldier. His entire life was about lines of authority. So he could easily understand God, prophets, Jewish people, everybody else. That made sense to him. He perhaps had a, more, a better view of that because of his army background than the average Jew who tended to go, God, well, Jews are over here somewhere, and then there's everyone else down here. 
He understood lines of authority. He says, I also am a man under authority. I recognize your authority. All you got to do is say, be healed. You don't have to come to my house. He understood that Jesus was God. He understood that Jesus had authority. He did not consider that Jesus might be limited in his power. He did not consider himself worthy of anything that this Jewish hero, this Messiah, had, but he begs for his servant's life. And it is a properly humble perspective. He actually understands. This is, at the very least, a major prophet. Based on the way he's addressing them, this is God himself down to the planet. I have no basis to ask anything. I'm a dog. But I've got this servant. Would, would you just please heal him? And Jesus turns to the crowd and makes this point. I have not seen such faith anywhere in Israel. Let's continue. Oh, incidentally, the servant was healed at that word. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Uh, a moment. I have to look for something. Okay. Um, this does not look like the final version that I thought I sent out. Something has gone a little bit wrong. Let me uh, just take a moment here and talk. So two things to consider on this story with the centurion. First of all, as we have looked, this is the account in Luke. There's also a parallel account of the same events in Matthew. In Matthew, it says the centurion spoke with Jesus. Well, that's a contradiction. Luke says he sent servants. Matthew says he spoke with Jesus. Contradiction. Clearly the Bible is wrong. Go home, go home, go home. We got nothing, you know, we, we can't believe in the Bible. On Thursday, I spoke to Brother Darren about lunch, and we decided in conversation that it wasn't practical for us to meet on Thursday. On Thursday, I called Brother Darren on the telephone. And we talked about lunch and realized it wasn't practical for us to meet. And so I hang up and hung up and, and stopped talking to him. Did those two statements contradict each other? In one, I mention the telephone, and the other, I don't. So I'm not selling the same story, am I? You look confused. 
Talking on the telephone is such a common activity that we leave out that that's how we talk to somebody. Matter of fact, text is becoming so common, my daughters will say, I spoke to her about it. Well, no, she texted back and forth. There was no speaking in any way, shape, or form, but it's as if they had the conversation face-to-face because it is so common a mode of communication that you don't have to specify that you use the phone or that you use the text. In exactly the same way, communicating by servant in the first century was so common, you didn't even talk about it. So Luke mentions the servants. Matthew doesn't bother. It's not a contradiction. It's felicity of style. One chose to include it. One chose not to. It's not a significant difference It's not a contradiction. Don't let them confuse you. So now let's move on to the widow and her son. In the patriarchal Jewish society, a widow was automatically poor and helpless. She couldn't get a job. The man, the dead man, her son, was her only support. Without him, she's lost. The Bible tells us that much of the city was with her. This woman was loved by her city, but is now fated to fade into obscure poverty because she's an afterthought. She no longer matters. She has no support. So her life is going to go down to nothing. And Jesus comes into the city and he has compassion on the mother. He doesn't have compassion on the dead son because dead is dead. The dead don't need our compassion. There's nothing we can do about them. That son was either in hell or in Abraham's bosom. Now, I happen to believe he was in Abraham's bosom, not hell, because I don't think God has ever pulled anyone out of hell. That's a personal belief. You have no reason to share it. We can talk about it if you want to argue later, Brother Richard. I have a long history of arguing with Brother Richard and losing. So Jesus stops the beer. Now, this is a beer. That is, it's, 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 a, it's a dead man on a platform. They're carrying him out. We don't know if it was shoulder height or hip height, but, you know, four guys are carrying out dead man on a platform. Not a coffin. It's not closed. And Jesus speaks to the man and says, come on, get up. The dead man sits up and begins to sing, uh, speak, sing. It's not a musical. (laughs) This shows that he's fully recovered. He's not a zombie. He's he's engaging in conversation. I I have to look at the story and wonder, do you recognize Christ as the person who raised him? What did he say? But the Bible's quiet on that. The crowd is amazed And they acknowledge Christ as a prophet, but not as God incarnate. Let's take a look at this passage in Luke, please, brother. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. 
But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her issue of blood staunched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out, and took her by the hand, and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. So Jesus had spent some time in the country of the Gadarenes. It's not part of our passage. It's right before our passage. And that's part of the Decapolis, a more Hellenistic section of the Near East. It's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis is the, the eastern side of the uh, River Jordan. It would have been uh, Manasseh and Gilead. That, it was part uh, historically of Israel, but now it wasn't. It was Hellenized. Uh, there were ten major cities, hence the name Decapolis, ten cities. Um, he had spent some time there, and he returned from there. On his return, a ruler of the local synagogue, so likely a Pharisee, begs for help for his sick daughter, who is close to dying. Now, a Pharisee's house would not have been on the edge of town. It would have been right there in the main street in a prominent location. So Christ, who was thronged every time he came into a town, would have gone into the town and the crowds would have come about him. And as he's walking toward the house, a woman comes up behind him and just touches the hem of his garment. Now, I've always had a problem with that passage. What do we know about the clothing Jesus wore? We have a description from his crucifixion that there were four parts plus a tunic. Now, the tunic he wore was a single garment woven from shoulders all the way down to ankles or mid-calf or something. It was a single woven garment. So if she came and touched the hem of his garment, I mean, was she crawling? Is she sitting by the road and just reaches out to touch the hem? Seems a bit silly. I just, my mental picture, I always had an issue with this. You know, it's... I mean, I can see a, a Charlie would totally do that. But a woman with an issue, well, what a surprise, a woman with an issue. I wish my wife was here to pick on. I'd hear about it later. 
A woman with an issue. A woman with an issue of blood. Um, she comes by, but he's wearing more than that tunic. Remember, there were other pieces that the, the men at the crucifixion divided uh, between themselves. In particular, he most likely was wearing a Jewish prayer shawl. So a prayer shawl is basically a square of fabric. And I, I, I can certainly see um, Mexican ladies wearing one. I, lots of other way, ladies, but my picture of a Mexican lady includes that. It's going to be a, a roughly rectangular garment. You wear it around your neck. It falls to the middle of your back. It comes around the front here and kind of, and it would have had tassels on it because it was a, a, a somewhat ceremonial garment. And incidentally, the clothes that Jesus wore identified him as a have-not. He wore the clothing of the poor. So it's much more reasonable for this lady to touch the hem, the border of his prayer shawl, than to be attacking his ankles. So she came up from behind and touched the border or a tassel on his prayer shawl. When Jesus is touched and the woman is cured, he stops dead and says, who touched me? Now, Peter and the other disciples who were incapable of leaving a straight line start going, seriously, Jesus, everyone is squeezing us in and you want to know who touched you? Are you having issues today? Of course, everyone touched you. I touched you. Andrew got jostled. He almost knocked you over. John and James were on the other side. They hit you with their shoulders. What do you mean, who touched you? And everyone denies touching Christ. Not not unreasonable. This is a revered figure. When the teacher says, who did that? Everyone goes, wasn't me. And when the, the woman realizes that it's her. She comes forward, trembling in fear, admits her illness, her action, and her healing. Now, Jesus didn't do this to be mean. And he didn't do it because he didn't know who touched him. Jesus knew who had, that she'd touched him. He knew everything about her, and he knew her History, remember, he's omniscient. He could have given a day-by-day biography of this woman. He could have medically explained what was wrong with her. He's pantomiming for the crowd. The objective is to get the woman to admit what's going on. Because a miracle had occurred and nobody knew it. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing out this reality of the miracle. But he tells the woman that her faith had restored her. And while he's talking with the woman, while the crowd is delayed having this discussion, because the woman told her story. And if she was like some of the ladies at this church, it might have taken 20 minutes. No. I'm going to pay for that later, aren't I? Yeah. Okay. But it wasn't over in a flash. She had to explain who she was, what her problem was, how she was healed. 
That took a certain amount of time. While, she's, while Jesus finishes talking, messengers come from uh, Jairus and say, uh, don't bother, my daughter died. You wasted too much time. You were too late. There may have been a little element of judgment in there. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but let's, let's take a moment and bore into this idea. Jesus tells the woman her faith has made her whole. So is this faith healing? If she didn't believe, would she have been healed? It's very easy to get this idea into your head that her healing was dependent on her faith. But that's not what Jesus said. What he said was, your faith has made you whole. The reality is, her faith that Jesus could heal her if she only touched him, caused her to follow Jesus and reach out and touch him. Her faith drove action. Her faith did not create the healing. The power of God created the healing. Her faith brought her to a place where she believed that if she but touched, she got healed. Her faith drove her to action. Her faith did not heal her. Does that make sense? Let me give you a counterexample. In the passage right before... And the passages we continue reading, Jesus raised a young man from the dead. Jesus raised a young woman from the dead. Where was their faith? They're dead. They ain't got none. If faith is required for healing, they would not have been raised. So be cautious. If you start thinking that based on the Bible, you have to have faith to be healed. We're encouraged to have faith. Faith is what we have when we have nothing else. But our faith does not limit God. Or the history of Israel would have been even worse than it was. Jesus tells Jairus, don't fear, just have faith. And again, Jairus' faith is not what permitted Jesus to raise the dead. But it was necessary for Jairus to agree to have Christ come to his house. Because while Christ was perfectly capable of of raising the woman remotely, Christ desired to come into his house. So Jairus' continued faith to continue to invite Jesus to his house was necessary. Jesus arrives at the house and the demonstrational mourning has already begun. In the Middle East, ancient and modern, it's all about the drama of mourning. If you do not wail and carry on, you're judged to have not loved them. (laughs) All over the place. Jesus comes in. And in the room with the dead girl, Jesus, his core team of three disciples, and the mother and father come into the room. There's other mourners in the room. And Jesus says, don't mourn. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they mock him. You idiot. You ignorant redneck carpenter. That's dead. He says, get out of the room. Puts him out of the room. So it's Jesus, three disciples, mother, father, dead girl in the room. Takes the girl by the hand, bids her to rise. 
Her spirit returns to her. She rises. He instructs her parents to feed her. She'd been sick for a while. She was probably hungry. And then he tells them to keep this resurrection quiet. For a very practical reason, I believe, if you knew that Jesus could routinely raise the dead with apparently no effort, how many relatives of dead people are going to be flocking him continuously? He turns into resurrections are us instead of a preacher. He needed to continue to be able to minister, not be utterly mobbed, which is why he told the parents to keep it on the down low. But those three, those three core disciples knew. His, all, all his close disciples knew. And I guarantee you those, that mother and father could not resist sharing that story to some extent. So prophets have raised the dead before Jesus. There were three instances in the Old Testament. Elijah raised the young son of the widow he'd sheltered with during the famine. Elisha raised the son of the woman who sheltered him. Interesting uh, reflection there. But for both of them, it required a great deal of prayer and effort to accomplish this. It wasn't a speedy process. God also raised a man from the dead who touched the bones of Elisha. I don't think we can give credit to that one for Elisha. He was, they were his bones. He, he was gone. He was no longer using them. But Jesus is healing and raising the dead with no effort. And we don't understand omnipotence. We really don't because we have no experience with it. The prophets required God's intervention to perform so mighty a deed as raising the dead. Jesus was God. He raised the dead at will. Let me give you an example. Consider our church property. If I go to the back of the church property and I pick up a pebble, and I carry that pebble to the front of the church and set it down, most of my effort was involved in moving me from there to there. Not much effort with the pebble. If I go to the back of the property and I pick up a cinder block, I'm going to be a little bit out of breath by the time I get over there because I'm not accustomed to carrying 10 pounds of stone around. I'm carrying a lot more than 10 pounds of me around, but the extra weight of the stone makes a difference. I'm going to have to put some effort out. If I go to the back of the church and pick up a 50-pound rock, I am not going to enjoy the trip to the front, and I'm going to be very happy to set that rock down. If I go to the back of the church and look at a rock the size of Brother Darren's long-lost and bemoaned Volkswagen, I ain't moving it. Ain't gonna happen. For an omnipotent being, the effort to move the pebble, the cinder block, the 50-pound rock, the rock the size of a Volkswagen, and the entire earth is the exact same amount of effort. It is an act of will. He decides it's going to happen... And it happens. So for God, raising the dead and paring a fingernail, same effort of activity, same level. And if the Jews had been able to conceive that fact, they would have recognized this was no mere prophet. But they missed the point. Do we have this passage, brother? Um... So throughout this lesson, we've been talking about Jesus demonstrating his authority over death. 
Not only did he have the power to raise the dead, he had authority over death. When he spoke, death was no barrier. Similarly, later in the third year, Christ would demonstrate ultimate authority over death by raising himself. By God's power resurrecting Christ, who was very dead for three days, and showed ultimate authority over death. Let's look here in Corinthians as we talk a little, as Paul talks a little about that. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 